Everyday Story podcast. My name is Ben Armstrong. And I'm Jack Clem. Today we have a really special episode for you. A couple weeks ago, uh, Dr. Clem, you had the opportunity to interview another Jack. I did. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. um, I had the chance to interview, spend some time with my nephew, Jack Campbell, who is on his way to be a Bible translator with uh, Wycliffe. And uh, they're going to go to Africa. First, they're going to go to Switzerland and learn French. But uh, Jack has become really enthused, energetic, excited about Bible translation and all that's involved. And he's really just uh, so uniquely gifted and made for this kind of work. And his passion is spilling out into his own podcast that is called the Bible Translation Podcast, which you can find uh, in wherever you wherever you get your podcasts, right? So <clears throat> what happened was this. I was doing a little bit of research on an author, and I came across an article by this particular author on the way Son of God is translated uh, for a Muslim audience. And <clears throat> so when I saw it, the, the article dealt with how Wycliffe was handling that and how they were... Um, you know, working their Bible translation process to um, deal with the translation of Son of God for a Muslim audience. So I sent it to my nephew, Jack, and he got all excited about it. And I said to him, well, why don't we do a podcast together about that? And so we did. We recorded that. And that's what's captured in this interview. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, It's not overly technical. And it it ends with some really positive and uh, delightful outcomes. So give it a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. And particularly since, uh, you know, so many of us encounter at work and, you know, in the different routines of our lives, uh, uh, friends and family or friends who are um, part of the Muslim community, uh, this might be really helpful for you. doing something very special today because we're joining in with the Bible translation podcast. Did I get that right, Jack? With the, uh, okay, did, yeah. with my nephew, Jack Campbell, who is on his way to be uh, doing some linguistic work, work with Wycliffe translators. And uh, so the, what brings us together in this episode is that uh, I was doing a little bit of work on this um, book by... Dr. Michael, and we're going to leave his last name unpronounced because we're not really sure how to say it, but it's L-E-F-E-B-V-R-E, Lefebvre, something like that. Uh, it's, the book is entitled The Liturgy of Creation, Understanding Calendars in Old Testament Context. And I came across an article that the same author, Dr. Michael, wrote in connection with a, another colleague on the Christological title, Son of God, what was interesting to me was that there was a lot of discussion about how the Son of God title should be translated for a Muslim audience. And uh, in the article, it recounted some of the translation work that uh, was done by Wycliffe and SIL. And so as soon as I read that, I thought, I got to contact Nephew Jack. And so I sent the article to Nephew Jack and asked if he wanted to discuss it with mutual benefit to our podcast audience. And uh, so here we are. We're together. So the official title of this article that, we're, that initially brought us together, other than family, 
is um, Scripture in Context, a further look at translation of the Son of God phrase. And uh, Michael, as well as Bashir Abdufadi, published this article in 2012 in the International Journal of Frontier Missiology. And so for the purpose of full transparency, I want to bring to the audience the fact that I don't have any expertise in this conversation. Um, I'm just really thrilled and excited to be able to work with Jack on it, ask him questions. I have a stake in the conversation because you know, my area is more the area of theology and literary study, so uh, I think there's going to be mutual benefit. So, Jack, it's really great to be with you in this moment and to work our way through this conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to to talk about this. Um, this came up, the first time this came up to me personally was the very first church. So we joined Wycliffe in um, March of 2019, and we started traveling and visiting churches and talking about the potential of partnership with our Wycliffe ministry. And the very first church I went to, the missions pastor asked me, well, what's your stance on translating the familial terms of God? Oh, interesting. I said, I, said, I, have, I have no idea. <laughs> that this is, I had never even been introduced to the topic. So he gave me a short reading list, and I went and read through some of the things that were relevant. Um, but yeah, so I, I want to also clarify that um, to call me an expert in this area would <laughs> definitely be overstating it. Um, but it is something that I have been forced to engage with. And um, we'll get into this, but some of the ramifications that happened because of this conversation happening, honestly, back in 2012. So that article was written in 2012. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's right in the heart of it all. Mm-hmm. So we have a little bit of a, a more global perspective now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're forced to deal with it because yeah. it came up. So, well, I think I mean both of us are curious learners. So you know the curiosity mm-hmm. drives us into the subject, and uh, we swim around into it until we feel like we've um, gotten a handle on it. At least know where the uh, where the side of the pool is, so we can that's right. <laughs> we can go catch yep. a breath of air. But uh, but anyway, um, I, I think as our audiences listen to this, I think they'll find some real benefit. And you don't really have to be like an expert in linguistics. The conversation that we'll have will be at a general level, but um, I think you'll find it uh, beneficial. I think you'll uh, appreciate even how you handle your own understanding of Bible translations that you use on a daily basis. Uh, So, and by the way, uh, Jack's podcast, the first season for series really unpacks that question quite nicely. So you might want to check that out at the Bible Translation Podcast and uh, look at those episodes. So, all right, so let's just, we, we kind of uh, built an outline of question and answer, sort of we'll swim our way through it. So, so let's start off by, I'll ask, what is the basic Son of God translation issue? If we can just boil it down into a sentence or into a brief paragraph, Jack? How would you—so from that conversation you had with that missions pastor to where you are Mm -hmm. now, what would you say? Yep. So, uh, as the Bible is being translated into um, primarily Muslim contexts, Muslims have some preconceived notions about God. And so, as soon as you introduce somebody as the Son of God— uh, some things are assumed about that person. 
And so when Jesus is introduced as the son of God, the biggest issue is using that word son of God uh, implies that God had sex with Mary Mm -hmm. and which challenges his deity at all. Mm -hmm. And so there's some of that procreation concept that um, is kind of assumed into it. And so some translators decided that as we translate the the phrase son of God, we're going to either click qualify it with another word or we're going to leave that out because it is too, um, it, it brings out the wrong ideas yeah. in the hearers or the readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's offsetting. And this is a particularly important issue for those who are doing work with Muslims and who are, you know, kind of on the front lines because you don't want to see that issue become a distraction from getting further into right. the gospel. And even uh, the Muslims are taught that this is really, this is a grave error. It's not just some some error in translation, but it's a significant error that is laid out before them as though that's a warning. They do that. Mm-hmm. That's bad. Don't Don't get involved with them or anyone who uh, would bring that kind of message to you. So it's a, it's a weighty, it's a significant, uh, it's an important issue uh, for us. Okay, so with that in mind, then what can you tell us is the history of this issue? Like, so where have we gone with this issue? And it's gotten quite um, tense, hasn't it? There's been a little bit of it has. It has. name-calling and and uh, passion. <laughs> yes. Yes. So tell us about that. Yes. Well, as, as, as soon as you say we're going to take something out of the Bible, uh, rightly so, people get pretty upset. Right. And so uh, it's it's definitely more nuanced than that. It's not quite as cut and dry as this is in the Bible and we don't want it in there, so we're going to take it out. That is clearly wrong. Right. Um, but it is trying to present the Bible in a way, and we do this stuff all the time, where um, we... You know, for instance, I, I worked with a, a translation project in Cote d'Ivoire, and they wanted to use the word changed in, in talking about Christ's transfiguration. Mm. Um, and that's that's like a literal translation. But they said, if we use that word, it's going to imply that something of the occult happened to Jesus. Mm. And so they said, we need to work around this. So instead of using the word changed, they kind of talked around it. So that kind of stuff happens all the time, mm-hmm. but it's just a little bit more um, meaty when you're at such a crucial, we call them key terms, when you're at a key term, like son of God, um, things that need to be preserved a little bit differently than maybe the word changed. Mm-hmm. And so back in uh, 2011, 2012, um, somewhere in that area, I'm not sure of the specifics, but there was some translators that were starting to just kind of talk publicly about um, the need to leave out familial terms of God, so not to call God the Father or Jesus the Son. And um, I mean, there's also a Trinitarian problem in Islam because they would, their kind of critique of Christianity is that we serve three gods. Mm -hmm. And um, so as soon as you're talking about this familial term, so they saw it as easiest as maybe that's a little overstating it, but they saw it as wisest to take that out and not let that be a distraction. And some people fought back. And so um, what ended up happening was Wycliffe called in um, a third party 
the Wicklow, the sorry, the WEA, uh, World Evangelical Alliance, mm-hmm. and said, "Will you please take a look at this issue?" And they took a panel of people from all over the world and um, different Protestant faiths and said, "Let's talk about this this idea." And um, then came to some conclusions and gave that that conclusion, this panel discussion to SIL, the primary translators in these areas, and um, SIL has adopted those policies. So uh, the the remedy was not from Wycliffe or SIL, but from a third party organization. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's helpful to get that perspective on how the issue has developed. So. Now, since you've been with Wycliffe um, in your training, in the, in the training part of your work, has this come up or, you know, so, like, are you, do you working with some basic guidelines or best practices? So what would, what would some of that be? What would that look like or how would that be presented to you as you're in this process of preparing? Yeah, yeah so... Uh, honestly, the the most the most directly it was presented to us is um, to be careful that when we speak, um, because now we are members of Wycliffe Bible Translators, when we speak, we speak on behalf of Wycliffe. Mm. And so, as a translator, when I come out and say I'm going to leave fami- familial terms out of the Bible, um, most of the world sees that as a statement from Wycliffe, and so. The most, the most directly it's affected me is there's policies for things like social media and um, presentations that we have to be careful in our wording because um, we can't just say whatever we want. Anything we say represents a Wycliffe. And so there's some guidelines for that. As far as translating goes, um, there's a statement called the Arlington Statement mm-hmm. that was penned shortly after all of this stuff. And uh, that is our guideline. And so mm-hmm. there's a guideline for... Um, that's that's on SIL's website that will help help us as we kind of navigate mm-hmm. these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's yeah. such a it's such an interesting process. Uh, you know, I think most of us are you know unaware of what goes on in the production of a Bible translation, but once you begin to unpack the pieces, it is really fascinating and uh, really interesting to see all of the the details and the complications, the theology. So you're mm-hmm. you're really working through a lot of different uh, disciplines in order to you know accurately translate God's word. So uh, hopefully there's a greater appreciation for Bible translation than ever before as a result of some of this. Well, I will I will u- jump in to use that as a plug for the podcast because I just did seven episodes yeah. on this. It took me seven episodes to even describe the process, and I have so many, like, essentially rabbit trails that yeah. I I stopped myself from going down that I'm going to take advantage of in season yeah. two. So <laughs> that's, um, that's wise planning. There's a lot yeah. to it. There's a lot to it, and we need people of all different mm-hmm. uh, of all different skill sets to help us with this. It's not just a I'm a linguist. And my job is to work with languages. That's what I love. But yeah. there are so many roles in Bible translation. Yeah. So there, there's my Wycliffe plug you for go. you. We, we Say can move it loudly. on now. Yeah. All right. Well, it's interesting. Um, as you know, of course, I'm working with um, Dan Ebert in the Philippines doing some global mm-hmm. education. And uh, the history of that mission, the um, Christian Training and Missionary Fellowship that got started in the Philippines, actually in the on the island of Palawan, 
Dan's father mm-hmm. was a Bible translator with, um, I believe it was New Tribes he started with, but he has his degree in linguistics from the University of Wisconsin and um, went over to the Philippines. Uh, they did New Testament uh, in the Palawan language and so forth. And then uh, from there, the ministry grew into a teaching ministry. And then from there uh, to what it is today with um, graduate school and a, and a Bible Institute or a college, as we would call it here in the States. So um, so the, the, the ministry that I'm connected into right at the moment uh, also has sort of a stake in this conversation that goes all the way yeah. back to, to translation, um, which is rather interesting. So, all right, so when, when, you know, when I think about this issue, Jack, uh, you know, so we've talked about, okay, summarizing it in a nutshell, so we got an idea of what it is. We've, uh, we've got a general picture of the history of it. And then, of course, um, you know, the other thing that I'm interested in is thinking about, like, what are the tensions that are associated with this? And we've already alluded to some of those. Uh, but, you know, let me just, I'll lead in with one, and then you pick up with whatever uh, other tensions you feel. You know, on my side of the coin, I'm thinking about, um, you know, how do we handle just this term, Son of God? So even apart from translating it, there's a lot of tension in terms of, like, how do we interpret it? And, and in, on the theology side, we're always wanting to be careful about, um, um, you know, in no way diminishing the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ with a term like this, but emphasizing what does son of really imply theologically, ontologically, about the person of Christ. So there's where, there's where the tension is. And, um, you know, over the years, at least in my few decades of life and ministry, uh, there have been different points along the way where this has been kind of a hot button. You know, do we, do we support or advocate for the eternal sonship of Jesus, or do we advocate and support um, something that may have uh, been bestowed upon him, say, in connection with the resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus? So, so there's the tension there, just so on the theology interpretation side, now, what about on your side? So we're, we're you've already kind of alluded. Is there anything else you want to say right. in, uh, in connection with that? Yeah. Anytime you anytime you translate something into a new context, one of the things that we're really really careful of is um, what are they going to hear when mm-hmm. you say this. Mm-hmm. So if when I say, you know, I am God's son, if they come from, um. If they come from a certain background, in this case, a Muslim background, then there there are some things they hear me saying that I might not be saying. Mm-hmm. And so we always have to be careful of that. Right. And then um, we all we also have to um, ad- address the like this is an age old question in in translation. I mean. The way our translators say it is every translation is an interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. So you have you're trying to understand what the meaning is, and you're interpreting it to be into this other language. That that's why there's I don't know how many English translations. I think there's 61 you can access on U version for free, mm-hmm. and so um, there's that many English translations because every dis- every time you translate something, those words are adjusted to speak to the context. To which is being translated. Mm-hmm. Um, so every time, every time we translate, we do that, mm-hmm. and so our goal is to understand what 
like you're saying, what is being said? Mm-hmm. Why are they saying son of God? Mm-hmm. And then how do we communicate the exact same thing to somebody in a different context? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the tension is, is how do we, how do we convey the, right, me, the right, right meaning? Yeah. And you know, um, I'm even thinking, and often it's the same words, Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm even thinking of uh, how different translations are geared or adjusted to certain reading levels. So vocabulary is going yep. to change, yep. you know, like the NIV is a little, I, I forget exactly what it is, but it's a lower reading level than, say, you know, the New American Standard or the ESV. But, um, but you know, it's rather interesting. So, I mean, all of this conversation really is growing out of, um, you know, outreach mission to the Muslims. And, um, and of course, there's a lot that God is doing in that, that population, in that community, uh, among that group, and um, it's really exciting to watch what's happening as we hear different reports about it. But you know, right. so being sensitive to like I, I was not aware, uh, and so in my research came to realize more that you know they don't Islam does not recognize adoption. So even like if you tried to explain mm. Son of God in some sort of adoptive terminology, that's not going to work. And then of course. Um, the other thing that you've alluded to is just this begetting, you know, how did, you know, how did God have a son? You know, like, um, and of course, the Quran, Muslims would think, well, if God was powerful enough, he would have just created one rather than having to, you know, work through some carnal act uh, where the son is, is then is born. So, so you know we're working through those kind of issues, and those are real because they're they're off-putting, they're offensive, and uh, you want to remove as many offenses as possible, but um, uh, you don't want to overcompensate, and you don't want to undercompensate. Uh, right, that's exactly right. You know, and yeah, because if we if we translate it, an example of undercompensating is something like word order. Yeah. So every Greek has a different word order than English. And so every translation changes the word order in order to make it understandable in our context. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you didn't, no one would understand the Bible. And so there's those things happen. Things are changed. I put air quotes. Things are changed every time you translate the Bible. Um, And so it's just a, it's a, it's a scalar thing. Uh, Where, where have you crossed the line into something that is now changing something about scripture? Right. Yeah, I think, if, and then if you overcompensate, it's almost you run the risk of syncretism. You know, like you've so yes. enculturated yes. the translation into that particular culture that it doesn't, it doesn't. There's no distinction. There's no differentiation between this translation and um, um, you know the scriptures itself. So, okay, so so we get a feel for the tensions. You know, we see where. Um, the history has been, we see a little bit of the work that's been done. Um, let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the resolutions and, um, you know, um, you know how this has been handled or, you know, what's... And, of course, in the article that we're referencing or kind of um, responding to, bouncing off of, um, they list a number of, of really very interesting I think uh, ways in which the issue has been handled. I, I like the one. Uh, I, I like some of the terminology, and of course, you probably already addressed this, but maybe for the audience that uh, you know would hear the Everyday Story podcast, maybe you could hit things like just a couple of 
key things about nature translation, formal versus meaning-based, paratext, you know, in-text, you know, some of those terms that are, you know, your uh, world and your vocabulary, but uh, not necessarily the yep. vocabulary of the common man. And then, then let's just kind of mm-hmm. summarize how the controversy has been handled. Yeah. So um, every time you tr- pro- approach translation, you're choosing a translation style. And again, it's it's a spectrum. So it's not it's not like a one or the other, but it's where are you going to land on the spectrum? And so um, we would say a more literal or word for word translation is to the best of our ability going to translate every word of the Greek into. Let's just use English as an example because we have a lot of different examples of all these types of translations. So uh, something like the New American Standard is a very literal word-for-word translation. So um, it sacrifices maybe readability Mm -hmm. or clarity for the sake of accuracy. Mm -hmm. And we like to talk about accuracy, clarity, and naturalness Mm -hmm. as the three things that we are aiming for and their intention. Mm -hmm. And so it's a constant – the translation process is a constant – cycle of here's what the Greek says, let's write it in English, let's say, and then let's send that out to English speakers that have never heard of the Bible before. They're going to read that and they're going to say, this doesn't make any sense because I would never say it like this. And so it goes back to the translators and say, okay, given the accuracy of what you had and the edits of naturalness and clarity, how can we make this better? Mm -hmm. And so it's this constant cycle and we always we always use or to the best of our ability we use native speakers and so um, we we have this cycle of making sure that it's it's accurate as possible and so the other end of a of the spectrum then is a very dynamic equivalence or uh, paraphrase paraphrase maybe going a little bit too far but um, where you're taking um, a translation sorry so taking something from Greek and you're saying it says this. But that doesn't make any sense. And so we're going to figure out what it means and we're going to translate something that's identical. A really common one that comes up is idioms. The Greek has idioms that are trying to say something. I, I'm failing to come up with any great examples right now. But Greek has idioms that's, that mean something. And um, sometimes you will, you will translate this idiom and it doesn't make any sense in our context, especially the agricultural references or something like that, some kind of idiom. And we'll translate it with a equivalent idiom in English that says the same thing. So a more dynamic equivalent translation is like NIV or NLT um, that are going to be a little, I hate to say looser with the text because that's not exactly what I mean, but they're going to aim to say, they're going to aim to have the same meaning. And you're always going to make interpretive decisions and probably more so in dynamic equivalents. Um, but that that's just how that kind of translation works. And so one of the uh, solutions that translators have is footnotes. ESV is kind of notorious for footnotes. And um, um, so that's like any of those in-text notes or things like that, cross-references. Those things are all uh, put in, and we leave it up to local translators as to what they want their Bible to feel like. I mean, think about the difference of opening up a study Bible um, that's got tons and tons of notes and comments on how this was translated, uh, as opposed to opening up uh, like one of those Gideon pocket New Testaments with nothing in it, just the text, because it's got to be as small as possible. Um, And so 
um, that that what that feels like is a is a pretty big deal. Actually, as a as interesting side note, uh, in Muslim contexts, so if you're familiar with the Quran, uh, they have the ancient Arabic on one side and the modern Arabic or English or whatever translation of they call it a inter- interpretation of the Quran, right? And so the Quran is on one side in nice lettering with a border. And it's beautiful. And the other side is just plain text. And and so they would say that makes it a holy book. And so we found that in order to get the Bible sold in those contexts, we had to do the same thing. And so they put um, Greek in beautiful lettering with a border on one side and modern Arabic on the other side. And people see it as, oh, this is a holy book. Uh, interesting. Now, you, re- you run the risk in the same kind of syncretism, syncretism conversation, you run the risk of... Um, them grabbing it and saying this is another holy book just like the Quran. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's what we don't want. But it's all those kinds of decisions we're making. Yeah, no, it's those are delicate uh, uh, lines to walk. So, what about this word paratext? How would you define that? Is that like uh, notes in the margin? Well, my my interaction with paratext is actually a computer program. So, paratext is the program oh, okay. that we use. Um that allows us to, um, it's really good for something like keyword, key terms. So, um, what, what we use with that is we can mark a key term like, like son of God, like that phrase son of God. And if we decide that we want to put heavenly before each time, because, because we're, um, saying the wrong thing without that extra word, which is kind of the issue that came up, um, then, then we can do that, and we can look through all the instances of Son of God, and we can search in their language. Well, that, that's uh, well, see, that's interesting. I was I was thinking of paratext maybe being something like um, uh, I, I didn't I wasn't thinking about it in terms of a program. I was thinking it more of you know uh, in contrast to in text, this is paratext with the text, maybe some notation that goes along with it. You know, that's yeah. There is a lot of was... that, but the term yeah, the term paratext that I've used is a computer program. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so in the article uh, that uh, Michael and Bashir worked through, they reference Rick Brown's 2000 article, The Son of God, Understanding the Messianic Titles of Jesus, and that's their point of reference. And they kind of worked their way through that. And um, um, I mean, it's really a, a wonderful interaction, and I want to make some comments on that We uh, when we get to the end of our, our podcast. But um, so, you know, let me just summarize what um, Brown is saying and what uh, Michael and Bashir are sort of coming to conclude about the Son of God, that from a biblical perspective, not necessarily from a theological perspective, uh, the Son of God title, as it's used in Old and New Testament scriptures, primarily Old Testament, as well as in like the ancient Near Eastern context, um, their conclusion would be something like this. It, it has a, it's a multifaceted uh, meaning, there's a multifaceted uh, nature, uh, because we need to parse that out a little bit, you know, multifaceted nature of this title, the Son of God, expressing love, that is, Son of God, close relationship of God to the one he calls Son, speaks of authority, the delegation of power from God to one he makes his agent. Uh, it underscores a person's work, the Son carries out God's mission among humankind, communicates holiness, the Son bearing God's likeness, 
manifesting his righteousness. It conveys identity. The Son is the one who embodies the presence of God among humanity. Now, I think you and I both would share a heart of conviction that you know, we would want to affirm with the authors that only Jesus would perfectly fulfill this title, you know, and he's the one um, who, you know, fulfills it in its, in its perfect, perfect sense, completeness, and uh, speaks to his deity, his character, you know, ontologically. Uh, and so, uh, but of course, the term then where we wrestle from this point on is... Um, how do we then apply this term Son of God to those it is used of who are not Jesus? So, in other words, believers are called the sons of God, and we see that in, in the New Testament. And, of course, uh, they do a nice job at, at parsing out how that gets managed. So, what do, you, what do you think, Jack? Have I left anything out here, or what, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it is a great uh, way of approaching it because, again, it's the same thing of saying the author uses the term son of God. And when he says that, he says that because his hearers would have would have heard something when he says mm -hmm. that. Uh, I think of the term son of man, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, a Jewish audience is going to hear Daniel, right, when, when Jesus calls himself the son right. of man. And... So those kinds of terms, and so it's hard for us to put ourselves back in the in those, um, in exactly their shoes. But th that looking at it with that perspective does open the door a little bit to say, okay, maybe there's room to change this if we find that there's a better way to express this same mm -hmm. meaning. If you're going for a more meaning based translation, yeah. Now I, I need to caveat that because I don't think there right. is, and yeah. I, like. In the end, we say, yeah, the Son of God is actually the best right. way to do this. And if if somebody changed that in order to be in order to soften the scripture for its listener, then then right, we're running into right. problems. Um, but it is I think it was a great like, okay, if you're going to it kind of brings the question, if you're going to change the term Son of God, here's all the things you need to you need to right. cover when you say right. something else, and it's it's really hard yeah. to do. Yeah, no, it's so true. So, so in addition to this, you know, when the authors lay out, okay, these are the facets of the way that Son of God can be understood. It does raise the question if the multifaceted nature indicates multiple meanings of the term, or multiple emphases of a single meaning. You know, so is a single meaning multiple emphasis, or is it, you know, multiple meaning? And of course, that's a whole, that's a whole nother conversation for hermeneutics. <laughs> but, you know, meaning versus application, which we won't get into. But, it, it, you know, it, I, I like how the writers, they, they just bring everything to the table, you know, and, and work their way through what uh, is being said. And then, of course, the other issue that comes out is, okay, how do we understand functional versus ontological. So, functional being, okay, is this term Son of God used to describe the function of Jesus the Messiah, or is it the term that is more descriptive of his essence or his being? So, ontological then. And uh, so, what did you think, did, what did you think about how they handled that? Or, 
you know, did that uh, stand out in your thinking? Um, it, it To me, it seemed like they were going for a both and there. I don't know what you felt like. Yeah, I did. I mean, they're... I appreciated their their conversation of uh, facets. I mean, what's what's the the imagery there, right? A diamond with its multi multiple facets, right? And so it's one one term, and there are different um, reflections. There are different out, outpourings of you know the light's going to go in different directions out out of this. Um, I didn't feel like they went so far as to say like it's, it's, it is a multiple meaning, um, thing. And so, um, yeah, I, I really, I mean, it helped, helped me. I mean, like helped me understand exactly, you know, what, what's at stake here. If we're going to, if we're going to talk about him being the son of God, what, what is implied there? And I've always compared to, I've always compared son of God to the term son of man, because they're, they're both used so much in the New Testament, Jesus of himself, and um, son of man, we're able to more clearly look back and say, you know, he's referencing this almost this character, right? That that occurs and that's mentioned in Daniel. And so, um, son of God seems to be acting in the same way. So so then more of that ontological things, but it's going to have mm-hmm. some functional outpourings and multiple yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a both and. You know, it it definitely and of course. We're we're affirming the you know we're not going to let go of the ontological, but it does in, indeed in some way describe the function of his office and how he fully manifested the presence of God uh, in his incarnation, and um, you know so David, um, one of the illustrations, one of the references would be so King David um, manifested the presence of God was empowered by the Spirit to do his work, you know, was authorized to do his work. But he wasn't deity, but, you know, he represented the presence of God, the Spirit being with him, um, perhaps brings a little bit of insight into his uh, prayer in Psalm 51, don't take your presence, you know, don't let your Spirit be taken from me, you know, kind of a thing. So it's not indicating the deification of David or even when it's used of Adam, you know, deification, but there is a sense where this human represents the presence of God, you know, in a, in somewhat of a, a missional, if we could use that you know idea, uh, as God advances His plan and His program. Um, and so, you know, if you play that out, you know, there's a sense of where we, as the sons of God, are, you know, indwelt by the Spirit of God. We're not deity. But we are manifesting the presence of God. We are shining the light of the Lord in in a dark uh, and desperately needy world. When we say He's the Son of God, if if you're going to say that that is what is that term is is claiming Him to be God, deity alone, that term alone, then you have you have some real like shifty work to do when He calls Adam the Son of God. He calls us sons of God. Like, um, but because of the whole scripture, scripture as a whole, we know that Christ is deity. And so we know that it has a different or more full meaning. What, what is the, what does Michael say in the article? It got highlighted in the middle. Only Jesus manifests all these facets of meaning perfectly. So uh, 
But that's that's from clues elsewhere. So now we know things about Christ, and we read that into him being called the Son of God. Uh, I think of the same same idea when you know pastors are called shepherds of their church, but Christ is also called the shepherd. Um, we understand that Christ is much better at right living out what they're talking right, about right. than than pastors yeah. are. See, he fully embodies the shepherding role. Uh, we we're like a you know a, a you know sort of a faulty image of that, or, or you know <laughs> a foggy image of that. Yeah, so. But uh, but anyway, so that's that, you know I think that gives hopefully our audiences some idea of how this is used, and you see the relevance of it with regard to um, outreach, you know, from from us to a Muslim pop- population, making help, hopefully it makes us a little bit more sensitive to any conversations we might have with Muslims. You know, what what are, what would be some of the delicate issues that might. Uh, I know I don't think you would want to lead with this, but uh, you know, but you would definitely want to be prepared for it and uh, knowledgeable. And so, this is an area that I think uh, we all should be somewhat informed of as we have conversations with, with uh, you know, our Muslim friends and and uh, neighbors. Um, and then I think also it's it's really informative with regard to just how we understand our own translation of the Word of God and uh, better manage that. Um, so, I was. Um, so I, I think you know resolu- I think we've probably hit some of the resolutions and the outcomes. Is there anything else you'd like to say about that? Anything stand out in your mind in terms of resolutions or outcomes related to this issue? Um, yeah, anytime this is what I was gonna say, anytime we read scripture, there are going to be things that are talked about that we need to redefine in light of scripture. Right Maybe as as like simple as somebody who has a view of heaven and hell that only has it from culture or the devil that only has it from culture with horns and a tail, and they come to read the Bible, they're going to need to reshift what what their restrictions are on who the devil is and what he can do, kind of idea. And I, that's how I feel the same way about about God um, when we when we bring the Bible into a culture that um, has has a God, Allah, that they worship, and that God has some restraints, right? He can't, he can't have children. Um, that was interesting. Michael brought up, too, in his article that um, he had some children by marriage, and they make, the Quran makes this distinction between you are um, they are not your sons, they are your adoptees. And you kind of reference that where they don't see adopted adopted kids as kids. And so there's all these restrictions. God cannot have kids, period. And even if he adopts them, they're not actually his his kids. And that that kind of thing just needs to be redefined by scripture. The the reader needs to needs to go into it being willing to be redefined when he reads scripture. And uh, there's th- things like that all over scripture, and that's that's where we end up with this familial terms of God thing. Is if you're going to read it and say, "Oh no, God can't have kids," then you have to ask yourself, "Well, why do I think that? Like, w- what is it that's informing that? And is it scripture?" And so it's not. Um, and so because of that, we we need to be able to uh, shift our thinking a little bit. And so because of that, you know, we both affirm that you know we leave 
of familial terms in. The Arlington Statement I referred to um, declares that familial terms of God will be left in, and often notes are added. And so I did, by the way, find that use of paratext that he uses in there. He was referring to, like, um, footnotes uh, okay. and other okay. textual references to to uh, kind of clarify... Yeah. Uh, what is meant so by there's that. a but there's more there's a more technical reference to a computer program but but hey uh just to jump on what you were just saying which i think is really insightful and, and what i also appreciated in the article was that you know when you when you wind this all down you know like when you okay you go through all the work and you try to understand the muslim worldview the muslim culture and then you try to you know maintain this fidelity to the scriptures and this orthodoxy with regard to the person of Christ, you know, you, you ultimately come down to, this is a spiritual battle, you know, and no matter what you do, no matter how you translate it, it's going to be a problem. And so there is a sense where, um, you know, we can't compromise the nature of the scriptures and its worldview and its presentation of Christ simply to accommodate a people group. I mean, we can be sensitive to, we, we should be definitely informed about what they're thinking. Like you said, what are they hearing? I like how you said that. Like, what are they hearing when I, when I say this? And um, I, I think I've been more sensitive to that lately, even just in, um, you know, like, because I kind of grew up in one sort of bubble, and now I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, I realize that my audio <laughs> and my cognitive <laughs> abilities were definitely programmed <laughs> to hear... <laughs> hear one thing. And so, um, you know, I, I, I just I just appreciated the fact they came to that conclusion, like, okay, but let's keep in mind, we're in a spiritual battle. Mm, yep. And uh, it's going to... Yeah, and I, I really appreciated just, and we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but in reading this, um, they addressed the issue, and they came to the same, same conclusions that people that got all furious about this when this first came up, they said we're not going to take the term son and father out of the Bible. And Michael comes to the same conclusion in this article, but he does so by saying, so what's at the heart of what the person is trying to do? And I, I think there's some really healthy um, dialogue to be had with, you know, people that are trying to defend the faithfulness of Scripture and people that are trying to be a witness, and people that are um, translating in order to reach more people with the gospel. And if they make a mistake, in which I would say this was a mistake, if they make this mistake, then we we don't come down on them and saying, well, clearly you don't believe the Bible anymore. Right. Like, that's that's right. not what they were going no, for. No, they... um, and he addresses exactly what they were going for. He says... But it's not the not the pathway we're going to take, and that's kind of how the general evangelical mm-hmm. council came to the same conclusion. But he did it in just such a kind oh, way, no, in such a I, I, um, careful for, way. You know, if you want to have sort of like an example of a great way, a lovely way to have a conversation, this is a great article to read just to see how it's done. So I I felt it was very instructive, not just in you know these very technical matters about translation, but just like. Just sort of manners and ethics, and uh, you know, uh, manners. Yes, <laughs> something that's lost. I know, isn't it? I mean, I just thought, you know, it's like you could see that he was seeking to listen, 
you know, to the conversation. Uh, he wanted to offer constructive criticism. He did so uh, in, a, in a gentle, sort of kind way, but a firm way. You knew where he stood. And he looked for a path forward, found it, you know, um, you know celebrated what he could celebrate, you know, in, the, in, the, uh, in his opponents. He didn't impute motives. There was no impugning of motives, you know, none of that. No name-calling, no, you know, fomenting passion here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, it's the idea that if you're going to argue with somebody, you should be able to state their side of the argument as well as, as they can. And that's, that's a real frustration of mine in um, so many conversations that happen in our culture today where they when they present the opposing view, it's this very simplistic, um, based in terrible motives and not thought through. And it's just like, okay, well, as soon as you present that to somebody, as soon as somebody reads, if you write some passionate plea, as soon as somebody reads that, that doesn't agree with you, they're going to be like, no, you got my point yeah. wrong. So then all your all your arguments don't don't hold water right, anymore. Right. We don't want to take... But he yeah. says... Good. Go uh, no, I was going to say, you're, you're spot on. I, <laughs> I mean, I can just... I hear, I hear the news. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so he does a great job of um, explaining what it is that was being done. And, and, I, and it makes me feel for that. Like, I, there is, there is like, a, I can see the pathway mm-hmm. to um, all it would take is lightening this term, son of yeah. God, and Muslims are going to read the yeah. Bible. And so what are we losing in son of God that we're that we aren't gaining right, by right 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 the, the end justifies the means in a sense yeah yeah right right and so unfortunately that's not we don't have that authority to just change scripture like that so there's there's a bigger issue at play but man when you think of that i can just picture myself you know holding picture picture yourself in front of your friend like you know you can you're holding scripture and they say when you say this i misunderstand it or i i understand it in a different way and you're like, well, let me just change that. And you're thinking like, that'll, that'll bring this person to Christ. That'll open the Bible to them. And we just, and in the end, we can't do that. But um, you see that, you see that affective side. Yeah. No, you're so right. And, you know, it's easy, <clears throat> it's easy at one point in our lives as we're learners and we're studying these issues where we're not as, you know, as invested emotionally or relationally into the issue, just like you described with a friend you know, we can make these sort of like cold calculated, well, I would never do that, you know, kind of things. But then all of a sudden you are in a conversation where you're deeply invested in the relationship and your your heart is aching for them to receive the gospel. And, you know, all of a sudden you see, you see the world differently in that moment and uh, you make judgments. But I, I just thought, I just thought this was really instructive with regard to handle some some difficult issues and and theology and biblical studies is not exempt from you know passionate misunderstanding of arguments and so uh but i thought this is good now hey if we're gonna sort of uh find a landing see the runway before us i i was really sort of impressed with or captured by this idea that you know this insight that the bible translator, you know, in other words, you, you can't just rely upon the scriptures to be handed to somebody 
without an interpreter. And just the way, you know, the biblical pattern of witness illustrating that the written word was never intended to be unaccompanied by a witness, by an evangelist. I just got, I got really excited about that. I just thought that was, that was so cool with regard to uh, the work of the teacher, the witness, the evangelist. And a good illustration, of course, was the Acts 8, 26 to 40, where Philip comes alongside the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch is reading Isaiah and needs somebody to help him understand. So he's got the, the open Bible. And of course, God does save, and he works miraculously, opening the eyes of those that would read the scriptures, see it, understand it, believe it. But that's not really the pattern. The pattern is, you know, a, an, a missionary, a witness, an evangelist, a teacher bringing the word. And um, so I don't know, how did, did, that, did that strike you as well? Or is that, um, are you sharing my yeah, joy, my passion the, there, Jack? <laughs> yeah. So there's, a, there's a, a quote from the Wycliffe, um, the guy who started Wycliffe, his name's Cam Townsend. Hold on a second, I'm getting a weird echo. That's all right. The guy who started Wycliffe, his name is Cam Townsend. He's uh, Cam Townsend. He's affectionately referred to as Uncle Cam in in the Wycliffe world, and he he says the Scripture is the best missionary because it needs no furlough, and it and it's fluent in their language, and so it was interesting to hear that. Like that's easy to get on board with, but at the same time, yeah, we need people, and we run into this problem with translation all the time because. Um, the, um, sorry, there is like this weird, I'll have to cut, cut me complaining about my echo out here pretty soon, but, um, I hate that we run into this problem and yeah, we run into this problem in translation all the time because if we say something like uh, one example that I find pretty interesting, I don't know of anybody that actually does this, but when you get to revelation and Christ calls himself the alpha and omega, right? You need somebody to come in and say, okay, those are actually the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so well, that's what he's saying. And so, so many times we get into translation translation processes where we realize when we're done with this, there may not be, there's going to be pastors, we're training people to teach it, but there's not going to be people with really solid biblical training that are going to be around to explain this to everybody. So we want to teach as much in the translation as we can. Right? How much do you leave just as loose? And so, so the question is: Do you ever translate it? You know, I am the A to the Z, because that's the you know the dynamic equivalent essentially, and it doesn't need somebody to explain. It's the first letters of the alpha, first and last letters of the yeah, alphabet. Yeah. But yeah, that's but there's these alpha and omega have taken on yeah. um, lives of their own in English. So well, that would never happen now. But okay, so we sort of end with this. All right. So typically I've understood, you know, every translation is an interpretation. All right. So then after reading, you know, this insight with regard to the scripture needs, you know, to be accompanied with a witness or evangelist, a teacher, whatever, I started to think, well, is that really accurate to say every translation is an interpretation or do we need to parse that out a little bit more or, 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 di- or maybe it doesn't even change it or doesn't even affect or effect uh, that phrase that we use so often. Yeah, I would say those those are both true at the same time. 
Um, because every time you, every time you, um, are a pretty popular example in our little translation circles is every time you translate a word into another language, there's often, you know, one, one way is there's three terms for love, right? In Greek that are all translated love into English. And so we lose something there, but it goes the other way too, because anyway, what I was going to say is there's this pretty popular story within Wycliffe circles where one language in Mexico had 26 ways to say to carry something. And it was a word that meant I carry in the palm of my hand, as opposed to a word that meant I carry it over my shoulder. And so the translator has to make an interpretive decision of what he's trying to say. So when we say that when Christ tells us to carry our cross, we can't use a word like carry it in the palm of your hand because now we're saying something about the cross. And so those translation decisions are made. Um, those interpretations of the text are made and we roll with those. But then, yes, we need somebody along with it. The scripture by itself needs needs an evangelist. Original music for this podcast was created by John Horton. Our graphics were designed by Virginia Stroud, and this episode was mixed and mastered by yours truly. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time here on the Everyday Story Podcast.